Spencer Galpin, Timo DeBrass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his fortnightly appearance in the program. It's his fortnightly appearance. He is the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest. And on this edition of the program, as he does every two weeks, Longenhagen endeavors here to analyze all prospects. Of particular note this week, Matt Bowman, Las Vegas, and the information gap between minor and major leaguers. David Lorla published an interview with Matt Bowman at the end of last week in which the current St. Louis reliever recounted the difficulties of pitching in a dry climate at altitude and the uncertainty he experienced whether he ought to be making adjustments or if he was merely feeling the baleful influence of park effects. Anyway, it leads to an interesting discussion with Longenhagen. How do you integrate a player's ability to use information into an assessment of that player and his major league chances? Moving on, we discussed which type of pitcher possesses those skills which might allow him either to race through the minor leagues or to skip them altogether. Rick Porcello, of course, was drafted out of a New Jersey high school, played one year in the minors before debuting with the Tigers. Mike Leak, a product of Arizona State University, pitched zero innings in the minors. What traits, if any, do they share? And which current college pitcher likely most resembles them? In addition, we have Longenhagen submitting a briefly confessional moment from his own troubled youth. As someone who failed at varsity sports, in part, I think because, not because I'm horrendously unathletic or because I didn't get along with coaches, both of which are arguably true, mm-hmm. uh, but like because when I'd go up for said layup, I'd be like, oh, I don't want to miss it. I really don't want to miss this layup. And then you know what would happen very often? I would, I'd miss the layup. <laughs> <laughs> All those giggles and more giggles like them in what's to follow. And it will follow quickly because there is no sponsor's message today. If there were a sponsor's message, it would be from SeatGeek, SeatGeek.com. However, there is no sponsor's message today. So instead, we get immediately and without delay to a conversation with Eric Longenhagen. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? That same lead prospect analyst, Eric Longenhagen. And when does it begin? Right now. It was actually something that was sort of kept away from my brother and I as we were growing up. When Jill was in high school and we'd be making out in her car, it, she had just empty cups of coffee all over the place. She's like a lifetime coffee drinker. And I think, I don't know, biologically, uh, if your body can like develop a tolerance to the, to the caffeine that sort of exists, exists in permanence when you're young. <clears throat> But I did not develop that. Uh, so like the last several months I've just been, I think I've been drinking more and more. Not really consciously, just like, oh well I finished my first cup of coffee, there's more in there, I might as well go get some more. Uh, so, I think I've been overdoing it. Yeah, and, and today, uh, well you know, um, I think it's well known that <laughs> I'm going to, <laughs> but, when Mary Curie discovered penicillin, mm-hmm. uh, totally by accident, she just left some uh, scraps of food. I may not have the story exactly right about Mary Curie discovering penicillin, but I'm pretty sure 
she um she just left out some scraps of food and then she invented penicillin. Does that sound right? Um I know that she died because of radiation poisoning that she sort of inflicted upon herself. Is that true? So did she did she not cure polio? Is what I'm is what I'm asking. Penicillin cures polio. We have, that's true, right? We are I am way in over my head at this point. Like this is not my <laughs> Is this a, is this another is I can tell a, you about the I can tell you about uh the respiratory system. Okay. I have two things to say to you. First of all, I actually don't know, but I I know I'm I'm I no no, here's what I know. I know that I'm very wrong right now, that I'm conflating three scientific discoveries. Yeah, like I think Louis Pasteur is in there somewhere. Yeah, and... yeah. But what I also know is that we discovered we discovered a soft spot in your in your elementary education last week. Yeah, we last Fortnite. Yeah, and we might have we might have just we might have just like like a uh, like a craftsman who or even just a, a homeowner who's uh, going around the uh, he's looking at you know with the drywall of his home with a stud finder. Mm-hmm. We might we might have we might hear the a loud and ever uh, increasing frequency of beeps. And once again, last week it was last <laughs> last time it was Canadian geography, uh-huh. which actually more than one person um, made note of me by way of social media platform Twitter.com. <laughs> that that they said it was sad. <laughs> they declared they said this is sad. This is not even it's nothing but being it's just sad. This is what's going on. Um, yeah, and some people, some of those people were Canadian. They said this is a travesty. And now, uh, now who knows what? We have a different, a different community. It's not as though, it's not as though you're not an intelligent guy, though. We just, they're just do a you, little bit. Do you find that there's just a finite amount of space in your brain to hold things and that you, there's, there's sort of, like, as you accrue more knowledge that your subconscious just disposes of some, some things and it's just like, yeah, I don't need to remember all the about Mary Curie. Yeah. And it just goes. Uh, so I, you know, yeah. while I can remember where like, um, Andre Reed went to college, but I can't remember <laughs> what scientific significance Marie Curie had and her yeah. husband, who, if I remember correctly, was also, uh, a significant. Her husband Louis Pasteur. <laughs> that I'm sure is not true. No, her husband was Jonas Salk. Okay. Thank you. No, her husband wasn't Jonas Salk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is fun you just though. Tell me anything. <laughs> you just tell me anything yeah. at this point. Yeah. I don't. You wouldn't. I. I. My love for you has grown, though. That's that's one thing I do know. Uh, I want to say. I want to say. This. Is that uh, your knowledge really your knowledge? Of pop of science, popular or otherwise, and or uh, geography is really not of any consequence right now. Actually, here's a way it is a consequence, and I um, allow me, uh, Eric, mm-hmm. to ease ease us both into a conversation about um, prospects and, and prospect analysis. Okay. Okay. Uh, and it's 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 the story begins with a brief, very brief anecdote. Is today I received a visit and will soon receive an estimate from a seamless gutter manufacturer. Um, because, uh, well, I got a little bit of, um, 
get a little bit of moisture in my in my foundation, in my basement, hoping to uh, prevent the uh, prevent that. So the gutters guys came by, and then I was going to ask you. You're not a homeowner, but uh, I was going to ask you, or I was going to say to you, I bet gutters are not really uh, something about which one worries living in the greater Phoenix area. Uh, it's funny that you say that. Uh, we, <laughs> the house that we currently live in, which is yeah. structurally identical to the one that we moved from, which is two houses to... Oh, that's right. This, you moved two houses Yeah, down. it's two houses to the south of me right now. But the way that our roof in the front of the house is pitched, uh, it's, it's done in such a way that the water runs, uh, into like a, a waterfall right next to our front porch. And at our old house, it was a, a problem, <laughs> uh, because the way the landscaping out front was structured, the water would run back into the house. And so we had what was the heaviest rainfall, I think, in the history of Arizona our first summer here and woke up the next day and our living room was flooded. Like it was just, it's a sunken living room. So there's just water everywhere and because that house didn't have any gutters. So yeah, there's not a whole lot of gutterage here, but this, there are times during monsoon season when I think there are people who, who would like them. I do see the vans uh, out in front of people's houses. Well, I guess that's true. Moving water. I know that when I was – let's see. I visited Tucson one time maybe 15 years ago and mm-hmm. uh, Tucson has well, – there's a railroad that goes to the middle and it has these – it has um, – uh, the road goes under – the road goes under the, the, the tracks. Um, but it's – but the tracks are actually like at street level and the road actually kind of goes in a subterranean sort of way. And I think that those – when it rains – the point is that when it rains in the American Southwest – um, because the, 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 the soil tends to be quite compacted, so it doesn't mm, actually just uh, soak up the moisture. Yeah. And so uh, I could see an argument for gutters. But here's what I was, here's um, where that led me next was to a post, uh, published just today, mm. Friday by David Lorla, uh, with, it was a conversation, the product of a conversation with Cardinals reliever, former Mets prospect, Matthew Bowman, Matt Bowman. Bowman, Bowman, let's Bowman. say Bowman. Yeah, let's say Bowman. Uh, but Bowman was talking about, and I'm and I'm curious as to whether he's the only example that you can think of. I, I, I would not be surprised if there were more. He was talking about the um, the difficulties of pitching in Las Vegas, not only for the obvious reasons, uh, because of the combination of elevation and dry air, that. Um, that that can that affect you, like we see with uh, Coors Field, for example, at the major league level. Uh, but then the adjustments that one, or at least a certain type of pitcher, is inclined to make or want to make to say how to say how do I deal with this, and then maybe going ahead and making adjustments that are uh, that are ultimately deleterious, deleterious. I think that's a word uh, um, <clears throat> to the. Uh, to the pitcher, to the pitcher's development and in, in his uh, in the long term, his long term essentially success. Did I ask a question? I think you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I've been to Vegas. I've scouted in Vegas, and it's hard to describe how bizarre it is. There is just something about the way it comes off the bat there that is just more explosive. 
And this is are you are you saying above and beyond other PCL stadiums and like other dry elevated ones? I think there are there are, no, I mean like there are definitely a host of stadiums where this is true. Vegas is the only one that I've been to to actually see it. Uh and it is like startling. But yes, I think while I can't cite any Examples off the top of my head, other than Rick Porcello, uh, and his his was not necessarily environmental as far as the stadium he was playing in and the elevation and and the humidity and all those factors. It was just you. We need you in the big leagues now. Just get by the way you can right now. We can't afford to let you develop some other things that might ultimately make you a better pitcher because we need you to succeed right now. Oh, okay, right. So you're you're talking about a a player who's essentially whose development was bypassed, right? So that he could get to the majors, yeah. And I guess maybe you could argue that Edwin Diaz is is uh, a similar case study, you know. But is, the scenarios are always sort of different. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Bowman's always been. I saw Bowman in college at Princeton, and I think I wrote him up. You might be able to like if you Google. My name and Matt Bowman, like, find that, which would be interesting to see what I thought. But, uh, but yeah, like, he's always just been a slightly undersized, pretty athletic, uh, deep repertoire guy. So to see, like, that, that there was just, you know, when you don't have a blazing fastball or any sort of lights out secondary pitch and you're forced to throw in that kind of environment, I guess you are gonna have to search, you know, like, there's gotta be something there and, uh, but yeah, I, I do not envy those who have to, who are forced to develop in the Cal League or, uh, in the PCL or anywhere where it's, it's, you know, there's, it's advantageous either way to be a pitcher or hitter in a way that is extreme. You know, actually, I, uh, you've just compelled me now to look at Porcello's, and this is not the precise question I was asking, but now that I've happened upon Rick Porcello's baseball reference page, which documents his entire professional career, I find that, and this must be rare. He was he was taken out of high school. Yep, Seton Hall prep. Right, he was a first rounder, and then it appears as though his first assignment was high A, Florida State League. Mm-hmm. And that was his. That well, actually, that was not his draft year. So what, you don't have to recall any of this. I'm not going to force you to recall. This is nearly a decade ago at this point. But it appears what that he was maybe sent to. Um, like a what do they call that when they go when they go to the complex they played in the complex like a complex league maybe and then he was immediately assigned to high a and then the very next year after pitching a full season in high a he pitched only with the tigers that's amazing Mm -hmm. that's rare yeah i remember being i was i guess at that point a sophomore in college and Graduated at high school the same year that Rick Porcello did, I think, in 07. And there were kids in my classes at, at St. Joe's in Philly who like went to high school with Rick Porcello. And that's when I was like, that's kind of, that's, this is, you know, at the beginning of my uh, baseball scouting, you know, life around or thereabouts. And I was just like, yeah, this is kind of strange. Uh, and that's how I sounded as a sophomore in high school. And, but yeah, like, I don't know that there's, this sort of thing just doesn't happen very often. It happens with college arms semi-frequently. 
But not only a high school kid, but a high school kid from the Northeast made, well, I don't know what, like probably a dozen or so minor league starts, maybe two dozen in a full season at, at Lakeland at the time, I guess, you know. Yeah, you're exactly right. 24 is the number. And then it appears as though his next start following that, uh, would have been the beginning of the 20, uh, the 2009 season mm-hmm. uh, was as a starter for the Detroit Tigers. From what I can tell, that's the case. Uh, yes, that is unusual. It's the sort of thing that you feel, uh, that was maybe, uh, more likely to happen in the 70s. There were what? There was a sort of a spate. There was a, uh, a top prospect in the Rangers system, maybe, who went directly to the majors, uh, and whose career was ruined. Maybe was Brian Taylor, another example of that, something along those lines. I'm not familiar with disco era pitching. <laughs> you purposely blocked it out. The, uh, the point being, <laughs> the historical, historical element of it doesn't matter. Um, the, the point is being is rare. What? So, Porcello, yeah. uh, allow me, allow me to, to get, to guess something about, but Porcello has always thrown reasonably hard. Uh, as a, as an early, as a young pitcher, he had a, a good sinker and he had command of the sinker. And I guess passable secondary pitches. A, is that correct? B, uh, do you think that that is the sort of profile that would expedite a pitcher's, um, a pitcher's path for the minor leagues. Uh, I think, yeah. If you th- if you're throwing a sinker and you're getting ground balls and there's not, uh, if the, if a team doesn't see a reason to try to uh, let you develop in a way that's going to allow you to miss more bats, then yeah, just go ahead and do the thing. Because you know what the sinker ballers, ground ball pitchers in general have pro- usually, I think one meal ticket pitch that they lean on to get those ground balls. And if you're, you know, 18, 19, 22, who cares? If you have it and you're throwing it for strikes where you want, then you've already have the foundation for your entire pitching profile. Then yeah, I think that 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 could be a guy who could move quicker than someone who needs to learn the finer aspects of pitching to get the most out of what they have to work with. Do you think that there's any, uh, any other sort of profile that would work? Maybe, maybe if it were, uh, maybe someone who was obviously going to be a relief pitcher, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the other, the other types that, uh, you'll see move quickly. I don't even think I've, uh, I mean, even like Jonathan Holt, like there are a lot of college arms from last year's draft that have already been in the big leagues because when you can just throw two pitches and have a ton of margin for error, then you could just do that. Right. The uh, I will I will mention David Clyde is the pitcher I was thinking of. Okay. Uh, he I guess he was uh, to the best of my knowledge he went to a school in Texas. Yeah, in Houston, and then he was selected by the Texas Rangers out of high school and was uh, immediately sent to the major leagues. And it did not work out well. It didn't work out well really. He's not the last high schooler to do that though. Mike Morgan. Was the last high school wow. to do that, I believe. Yeah. 1978, it appears, according to this Wikipedia entry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this, I mean, Mike so, Morgan, but, Morgan was this? pitching when... You were a person. Yeah. Like, when I was a... I remember, I think I have a Mike Morgan baseball card from his Diamondbacks days. Yeah, he also pitched for the A's for some time, I believe. 
if I'm not mistaken. And probably a bunch of uh, a bunch of players. Mike Leake, it appears, was the last player to actually straight, do it. Mike straight Leak. two, yeah. Yeah, Arizona State mm-hmm. uh, with the Reds. And that makes sense too, right? Uh, that, I think that the um, – well, wow. I'm about to tie something together for you real f***ing hard. Are you ready for this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are, you ready to, are you ready for that? Uh-huh. Uh, Rick Borsello, I mentioned, expedited through the Tiger system as a uh, right-handed sinker baller. Mike Leake we're just mentioning, right? The most recent pitcher to go directly to the majors from college, a rare feat, even, you know, and of course he would, it would have been older than Priscilla, but this is rare enough. The, um, he's the only person to do it in the last five years. Actually, the last 10 years. First person to do it since 2000 when Xavier Nady did it out of, out of UCAL. So basically the only person in the, since 2001. Uh, uh, Mike Leake and Rick Porcello, I believe, are currently tied for um, lowest walk rate in the majors, hmm. which I think uh, that would seem to make sense, right? We're talking about types of pitchers who might who might be able to make that that leap. It's guys with mm-hmm. command or control, or a combination of command and control, however you'd like to phrase it. They both have a 3.8% walk rate, and I believe they, that makes them number one. Maybe they're tied for second. It doesn't really matter. The point is among qualifiers that are up there. No, maybe if we've we've hit upon something, Eric Longenhagen. Mm-hmm. Hey, how about this? What do you know about college baseball players? I th- uh, a lot, of, bunch of the things. <laughs> <laughs> is there uh, is there a pitcher who you would imagine um, in the twenty seven? How about the twenty seventeen draft from, uh, as it's shaping up? If you had to select one guy, who you'd say? Yes, among all of them, he'd be the most reasonable candidate to go directly to the majors. Just given a combination of adequate physical tools and command of those. Directly? Sure. I mean, we're not saying oh. he's definitely going to, but it would be the best candidate. A Mike Leake, a Rick Porcello type. Rick I guess Porcello. Alex Fajardo at Florida is, is was the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, tell me about Alex Fajardo. Well, I've never seen him in person. Um but you know, there's just a guy who, if you're if your primary driver is someone who's thrown strikes, I, I mean, I believe Fiedo would be higher up up higher than guys like Tanner Houck and uh, JB Bukowski. Like these are the the other bigger uh, names. N- yeah, names from next year's draft as far as college pitching goes, uh, and. You know, they have, they're, they have huge stuff that they, you know, have had trouble commanding at times, whereas Faedo has been very successful as an underclassman constantly, constantly. And what uh, is his, uh, what does he have in terms of, uh, physical tools, arm speed and, and the like? Uh, I gotta be honest with you, Carson, I don't know a whole lot about Alex Faedo right now. Yeah, well, we gotta, you're gonna have to do some research, <laughs> Eric. Otherwise, what the hell is the point of this podcast? Damn it. I don't know. I'm starting to sweat now. (laughs) Here's a question. Do you think that from the 2015 draft, Hmm. do you think that Thomas Eshelman, uh, currently a member of the Phillies organization, previously Hmm. a member of Cal State Fullerton, uh, do you think that he would have been a candidate for that sort of thing? Uh, I suppose so. His stuff wasn't 
good enough for that sort of thing. Uh, not as good as leaks, probably across the board. So, but yeah, like if you, if you're trying to identify a guy like that, that's the type of player. Eshelman uh, was crazy at Fullerton, wasn't he? I mean, zero. Yeah, it was like historic, historic yeah. uh, command and control at Fullerton, like all time. Uh, Mike Bauman, currently at the Ringer, wrote a lot about Eshelman during his career about how, like, if you want context for how historic his strike throwing ability was, like, go dig up some of that old stuff. But it was like uh, beyond anything that that we'd ever seen before. You think he's got? I mean, what do you think he's going to be as a major leaguer, Thomas Eshelman? I assume you're going to – you must be thinking, because you have the the end of the season, right? What is a month away, regular season? Mm-hmm. And you have some playoffs after that. But that specter of those those uh, organizational lists is be, is looming larger oh, yeah. and larger. Uh, I'm aware. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it must be frightening. It is. Yeah, yeah it's a real burden. It's like, it's like having 30 albatrosses around your neck. <laughs> Imagine that. Not just one albatross. I mean, there was one albatross around, and then they got a whole poem maybe written by it. He went awry. 30 albatrosses, though. And then the draft and the J2 stuff, and there's a lot of scouts just getting back from the Dominican now who I'm, like, trying to get on next year's J2 stuff, too. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, uh... Fayedo, by the way, Fayedo with Team USA. Yeah. uh, Like, 92-94. Okay. Mid eighties slider, plus Flash is better than that. Throw strikes Who's with both of you? those. Who's telling you that? I have a phone near me. Are you, you are we doing real time scouting again? Real time uh, working sourcing? working of the sourcing. Well, yeah, like, so I've never seen Fiedo, but so, yeah, but like, you have a I know who he is, and I know that he's good, and I know that he's like I've seen him pitch on TV and stuff, but I don't. Like I don't know velocities and. Do you think anyone expects you to what to literally see to see everyone whose name you're going to cover during the process of this organizationalist? I think that's unreasonable. Isn't part of your value the fact that you have people who well, you can yeah, text? Yeah, yeah. yeah I hope it not, is. It's not possible to see wanna, everybody, which is something. Uh, I'll tell you what. Tell myself I don't want, constantly. Yeah, I don't want to. Th- I want to read those without having – I don't want to imagine you having to have seen all of those people. All the guys. It's too much effort. I'd like to make see Fiedo. Well, you, yeah, I suppose. Do well, you think he'll be out in the West at all? Uh, I doubt it. Yeah. Most of the, the schools that find themselves in odd places like Arizona or California from – the East Coast do so because they're from a cold weather place and need somewhere to play early in the season, whereas Florida can just hang out at home. Right. Other teams come to them. That's how it works. Well, maybe it's going to have to wait to the... No, it's just not going to happen. You're going to have to go to them too. Yeah, I'd have to just go. Yeah. I'm going to be too busy watching Colby Woodmancy. Is he a person? Yeah. Former Arizona State. Do you remember? You were f-ing here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also, I think he I think he discovered penicillin. Mm-hmm. True or false? He was integral, at least. 
Maybe he's taken Penicil. A lot of people have benefit from it. Probably. So we talked about Fajardo. We talked about Eshelman. Oh, yeah. Where's Eshelman? If you had to ballpark, baseball metaphor, if you had to ballpark <laughs> Eshelman's place on that Phillies list that you'll be composing at some point, where do you think you'll end up? Probably outside the top 10, like in that 10 to 15 range. Uh, definitely behind the the other upper level prospects, the guys at Double A, like Hoskins and Cousins. Certainly behind Nick Williams, despite my skepticism of his approach, and J.P. Crawford and Mickey Moniak, the obvious top end names. Yeah, but still probably ahead of some of the lower level guys, some of the like Cole Stoby and. Uh, the other, the other, uh, I guess Sixto Sanchez is probably above him at this point. Where, do, where, where will he, uh, where will he be placed on that list relative to Reese Hoskins? Well, Reese Hoskins. I, I have Hoskins above Ashelman at this point. Okay. Yeah. Hey, when you do those, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, when Kyla McDaniel. Uh, was authoring those, and then when Dan Farnsworth was, they would leave a little spot uh, at the very butt end of it for um, myself mm-hmm. to say this guy did not appear on the list, but uh, let's think about him for a second as a fringe as a fringe prospect. Do you have plans on allowing me to do that, or is that, yeah. or do you, are you kind of of the of the of the mind that it's no value added? In fact, maybe maybe it takes away from it a little bit. No, no, I'd like to, I'd like to continue doing that. Okay. There, I've, this is, you know, as you said, it is looming, this oh, process, yeah. and I've sort of begun some things already. Yeah. But, like, I've been thinking a whole lot about just what you, you're talking about, like the structure of the way everything is set up, and I don't know, I don't know what the best way to, I don't know the best way to do it. Not sure. You know, there was because you know Kylie and Dan and stuff would have giant primer intros where they're just like, before you read about the Mariners farm system, here's everything that you need to know about scouting. (laughs) And it was on every post. Yeah. Um, And actually, I had a scout a a few days ago be like, uh, you know, I really don't want to like have to sift through any of that. So I was like, yeah, I can. I kind of skipped all that stuff too, and I'd read them. So maybe we'll we'll do that. So like stuff like that, like just structural, procedural things about writing it and and presenting it is uh, that's the sort of stuff I'm trying to sift through right now too. Yeah, sift through. Well, it's interesting. Yep, and of course, of course, uh, scouts will you know I'm sure will be will represent one demographic who'll be reading it, but there are of course. There are, of course, uh, the, you know, uh, let's see, because it's a big city, there are a lot of people f- uh, from New York who mm-hmm. read fan graphs. And so if they're reading, if they're maybe just more a fan of the Mets, for example, uh, as, as such an introduction might, might have some uh, value to them. I'm not, I'm, I'm not insisting at all that you, that you put it in there. I'm just trying to, uh, just trying to make it more difficult for you, really. Mission accomplished? I, I guess so. Let's re- let me ask you more about Matt Bowman. Okay. okay. He said this is what he said. This is what he said to David Lorla <clears throat> with regard to pitching in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. He said there's something that stats, something that sabermetrics won't be able to capture. 
Part of it is the confidence of a pitcher. This is a game of adjustments, and when things are going poorly, it could be hard to trust that you don't need to make an adjustment. That's the way in which statistics can't capture a transition out of Vegas. He's talking about essentially just like park factor and only park factor, right? Mm-hmm. He says, if I'm sitting here trying to explain the difference between me last year and me this year, that's what comes to mind first. It's more of a mentality thing. There are a lot of little things as well, but getting out of Vegas was a big deal for me. The ball doesn't move as much. And when you give up a bunch of hits, even if they're on the ground, you tend to start pitching differently. And that's what, that's what, uh, that's what was interesting to me. Uh, and then he, he continues, he says, as someone who's in AAA trying to make it to the big leagues, you're thinking, okay, he's say, talking about, you know, if you've pitched poorly in Las Vegas, I need to make an adjustment, make an adjustment, make an adjustment. You're so close to making it, and all of a sudden, you're not trusting the process. Instead, you're trying to get results, so you get away from your game. Last year, I forgot what type of pitcher I was. I lost my identity. That's what struck me. He's talking about a sort of fundamental change in how he began to approach it, such that he he became a different pitcher than Matt Bowman. You know, he wasn't pitching like himself anymore uh, because he knew he had this, in, you know, in addition to the obstacle that his opponents present, he had this whole other obstacle, which was all of the sort of tools or the tools that had gotten him to AAA were no longer effective. Is it? And he's asking himself, are they no longer effective because – I'm facing a more difficult competition or are they no longer effective because I'm, because I'm pitching in Las Vegas. And that seems like a difficult thing with which he had to contend. I wonder how, uh, how would you ever, uh, or would you be able to integrate that into an assessment of a prospect if you're watching him play in, in the Pacific coast league or, you know, uh, some of the stadiums in the California league. I think if you have like a tender heart, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about if you're watching, I mean, it would take it takes a very reflective person to, I think, understand that about themselves, uh, and be able to articulate it. You mean in, in this particular case, Bowman? Bowman, yeah, yeah. Um, and it takes a similar, I, I guess, sort of empathy and trust in the player you're scouting to allow for that sort of uh, hedge in your report or just even in your mind. We're talking about deep psychological and like cognitive functions uh, that the player may or may not be completely aware of. Uh, and making adjustments is always talked about as like a, a – a very important aspect of a player's ability. And so the fact that someone like Bowman is making adjustments at all is arguably encouraging, even if they're not the best ones for his, uh, like long-term development, uh, or, or just for, for being, you know, the best pitcher he can be in the moment. So it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard question to answer. And I don't, I don't know. I have uh, some more from Bowman in a second um, that will actually – that fits like a glove onto the comment you just made. Um, but I want to ask you first. I've also seen it mentioned with regard to certain prospects. I've seen um, I've seen the word tinkerer used as a pejorative. Mm-hmm. So this guy is a tinkerer. He, you know, he'll try – maybe I've seen it more with hitters than pitchers. Maybe it's because they're reacting more than um, initiating action. 
but you, you say like a guy with his batting stance, he tinkers a lot. And th- this is, again, this is used um, in a pejorative sense. Uh, but perhaps, you know, the, the, uh, it's very possible that I'm not citing the work of Eric Longenhagen. But generally, I mean, have you have you seen this as well, the idea that someone uh, could make an excessive amount of adjustments? Uh, when that yeah. might become a problem? When that might, yeah, when it might become a problem? Um, I think, I know there are players I've scouted that every time I've seen them, there there's something different. And there are times when, and I know we've talked already a lot of, about Philly's prospects, but JP, JP Crawford is one of those guys. Um, when Crawford was drafted, it was because he was a good defensive shortstop. And if the bat came along at all, it was just going to be a bonus, like in, in a way that was impactful in any way. And then immediately he's hitting and walking and doing all sorts of things that indicate not only might J.P. Crawford be a plus or better defensive shortstop when all is said and done, but also might be able to hit at the very top of a major league lineup as well. And yet every time I've seen him, despite that success, something has been different. Uh, and so I think that to say someone is tinkering and use it as a pejorative is okay if you're frustrated that they're tinkering despite the fact that what they've done in the past has led to success and yet they still find uh, almost a compulsive need to make constant changes. Whether or not those changes are implemented by the player himself or by coaches or by roving instructors who contradict what the coaches that are there every day are saying to the player or some scout within the organization, like whatever is causing them, I am not always privy to because I can just see it, not necessarily what the catalyst of it was. Uh, and so it's hard for me to hold it against the player when he might just be getting bad advice. But, uh, but yeah, like, and again, the fact that player X makes adjustments at all is in my mind just a universal good. Okay, that's interesting. And I want to I want to read you now uh the the final two paragraphs from Laurel's piece on uh Bowman because it it's it sort of again it speaks to to the concern that you were mentioning before um about the sort of uh the, the tender-heartedness because it, it, it Bowman does seem it's it it's a sort of question of curiosity or need for information which if unfulfilled Kind of creates a vacuum that, and maybe, uh, and maybe, and maybe anxiety. So this is this is what he was saying. Um, he, he says a big difference in the minor league to major league jump has been the information I have available to me. In Vegas, I was in a difficult pitcher's environment where you don't know as much about the hitters. I was kind of feeling, I was feeling out exactly what they do. Here, that's St. Louis. I have information, and I can trust that information. I don't have to wonder if I made a bad pitch. Or if I should be tipping my cap to the bat, to the hitter, you know, because he had just won the encounter. I can go back and see exactly where the pitch was and exactly what that hitter does on that pitch. Instead of spending a week wondering, I can get an answer and move on. And he continues, there are guys out there who probably think too much. And I've been one of those guys. I still am one of those guys. It's not like I've outgrown it, but having information helps me. I like to know, okay, here is the adjustment I need to make. Thinking about something, thinking and thinking and thinking. Without having an answer is when you get paralysis by analysis. 
That's what happened in Vegas. I was trying to figure out what I was doing wrong or if I was doing anything wrong. I had no idea. Well, that's that's good stuff, don't you think, Longenhagen? Mm-hmm. Because you, it, yep. it speaks to that point you were making. And I imagine that there are some there are some players like this who really benefit from information, who maybe from uh, a lack of physicality because Bowman's not a big guy if I remember and and as you mentioned before he was I mean he pitched at Princeton right he was uh this is an Ivy League pitcher so clearly coming out of high school he was not regarded as a top prospect so one imagines that he relies a bit more on guile than physicality um or a bit on a bit on something other than physicality and it certainly Mm -hmm. is uh uh it would seem as though a his approach to the game matters. Now, I would think that the information gap between the minor leagues and major leagues would not affect every player to the same degree that it does Matthew Bowman. No. Uh, I can't see. This is part of why it's it's just harder now, I think, to to scout and analyze individual players in general because I think that the, the information that teams have – and that players have, if the teams are willing to compile that information and spend the money it takes to do so and disseminate that to them in an effective way, like it can cause adjustments, like an epidemic of adjustments. Like I think that's why, that's what might be going on with the whole, uh, juiced ball thing for this season, right? Like we're sort of at a point now where we're learning major league hitters have become so focused on uh lifting the ball in the air that it's inflating home runs at a rate this season where like we've been searching for a cause. It's not just a random blip like there's something causing it. It's not uh, the, but we don't know what it is. And it seems as though that hitters making this adjustment that hitting the ball in the air is more effective, so I'm going to change this about my swing and do that, is like might be one of, if not the primary cause of that. So, Well, yes, and exit if, velocities are higher across baseball, I believe, is something right. I'm citing correctly. Uh, which actually, I don't want to get off on like a fourth tangent here, but you can, I might write that down because I think there's a reason for that too. Um, okay. But... So what I'm trying to say is there are organizations who provide their minor leaguers with information and just an infrastructure in general that is better than other teams do. And I think that uh, the way teams do that at different levels uh, is, is, is a huge factor in the way they develop their players. Right. I don't know that the Mets are bad at that. But I do know that I've walked into some minor league ballparks and into the press box and seen data-driven stuff going on that there's no way the players aren't aware. Like the teams are clearly spending so much money to have this at their double-A park or wherever it is that this this information is not just sitting somewhere. Like it's being used. Um, so, yeah, I don't know a whole lot about the, the way the Mets might be uh, helping or, or hindering their players' ability to adjust or just their confidence in their own stuff. Like, I don't know. It could have just been like a managerial relationship thing. Like, there's a lot of possibilities there. Right. Well, it, um, you know, it's interesting because today, uh, Eno Saris published a, a post on Ryan Healy, 
uh, with some interesting mm. feedback from from Healy himself. I don't know to what degree you're familiar with Healy. Uh, I saw – I've seen him. Right. Originally, what, uh, uh, a pick out of Oregon in the 2013 draft, third-round pick? Yeah, like a 14th rounder or something. So I think he went, when? Think he went third round. I'm looking. Yeah, you can look. All right, fine. Well, I'll continue to I describe know, him. I'm not knowing things today. He's a corner guy. And mm-hmm. um, he – this is so far through nearly 200 plate yeah, appearances sure. with Oakland. He has recorded okay. an isolated slugging figure figure that would represent – that uh, until this year would have been the highest mark he posted at any level, you know, at which he'd taken any significant plate appearances. Uh, and he tell he talks to Eno Saris about how mm-hmm. uh, some adjustments during the soft season he decided to change his swing, and it's very similar to the adjustment that you know Josh Donaldson popularly made. Uh, it's very similar to the one that Jake Lamb credits uh, for him being able to hit more home runs. Even similar to not not that Alex Bregman made a huge adjustment, but he was cited today. Mm-hmm. Um, in a post uh, by August Fagerstrom, um, he said something to the effect of – or no, actually, sorry. His hitting coach said something to the effect of uh, in the major leagues, if you hit the ball on the ground, that becomes an out. Um, or no, sorry, Bregman did. He said uh, – Bregman said to August Fagerstrom, he said, we don't want to get the ball on the ground. Up here, that's an out. So we're trying to hit the ball on the line in the air. And uh, so far this year, um, Bregman has one of the – uh, highest rates of balls in the air. Um, and of course, uh, he's hitting pretty well and probably mm-hmm. for a little bit more power than one might have expected given his profile as an amateur. So, but it's interesting what you're saying here in terms of the, dis- the, the difficulty in assessing a minor leaguer when it does appear as though, in, as you note, certain organizations specifically, although some players have sought this out on their own, uh, might, might be able to offer tweaks to swings that um, that render the player, you know, Jake Lamb is a good example. I don't think Jake Lamb, I don't know what his power profile was, but I know that like, you know, at the all-star break, I think he had the highest isolated power figure in the national league. I don't think that that was part of his scouting report as an amateur. Is that fair to say? No, I mean, there are people that including me that really like Jake Lamb, but not that, not to that uh, extent, certainly not with the the power. Right. So, you know, you have to think that there are certain players who, they're going to learn a swing now, and it seems as though what you're suggesting is maybe this is happening at a frequency which it hasn't been previously, and uh, might make your your assessments of prospects uh, it might challenge them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know what I think it is? Yeah, sure. The, you have, the, a, you have a hypothesis. Bio biomechanical driver, I guess. Um, so. Someone, and I don't, I apologize, I don't know who it is, but I saw it come across, uh, my Twitter. <laughs> Took the, the summer showcase data that was, you know, all these high school kids at Petco and at area codes and stuff like there, there are trackmans and zeps and all sorts of stuff to measure things like bat speed and pitch velocity. They took Anyone who played both ways, so Hunter Green, Jordan Adele, uh, anyone who pitched and hit at, at these events and had velocity and bat speed both measured, and they just 
charted them, and there's a correlation between bat speed and pitch velocity. Like, you can clearly see there's a positive correlation. Uh, and that seems, like, intuitive. Like, this guy is bigger and stronger and just a better athlete, so, yeah, he should be able to swing a bat harder and he should be able to throw a baseball harder as well. Uh, and I don't disagree with that on its face. But what we know biomechanically about pitching is that velocity is primarily generated from uh, two two things really internal angular velocity of the internal rotation of your shoulder and uh, angular velocity of extension. So you're like creating an exponential sort of movement with your shoulder and your forearm by extending it that cr- helps create velocity. And those are like the two primary drivers in at least some of the papers I've read. Uh, also included in that is hip rotation not like angular velocity of hip rotation but timing specifically earlier timing so if there are the same some of the same components go into bat speed which creates exit velocity and power some of the same stuff goes into that as does into pitching velocity and uh earlier hip rotation helps you generate pitching velocity, then I think it would follow that earlier hip rotation might help you create more uh, bat speed. And specifically to, but you're sort of committed to pulling the baseball, which is where I think you're seeing Josh Donaldson's extra power come from, your uh, Ryan Healy's extra power come from, Jake Lamb's extra power is coming from. These aren't guys who hit home runs all over the place. Jose Bautista and those guys are dead pull, giant rainbow home run hitters. And so I think that uh, the timing of hip rotation, the way they're clearing their hips early, the way they're committed to pulling the baseball, is one of those power hitting traits that I'm like looking for now in young players. Like, is this something that you're able to do? Because it seems to be a common trait running through not only today's best power hitters, but the guys who we see a weird uptick in power at odd points in their career. Like, Ryan, like, this is the first thing when I start diving into Ryan Schimpf this offseason to figure out why no one figured this out. Like, that's the first thing I'm going to look for is, is this guy clearing his hips earlier and committed to pulling the baseball much more than he was as a prospect or as a non-prospect? Right. But how are you, so you're looking for, you're looking for players, for prospects, who might be more inclined to do that? Well, I guess you have to be at this point, right? If it's something, if it's, if, if it's really a thing that is, it's impacting a game at this level, where, it, and it seems at this point that it is, then I'd be a fool not to look for it. I think you'd be a fool. I mean, you're a fool anyway. Arguably, I'm already a fool. Right. But you don't want to compound. <laughs> no. You don't want to compound it. Well, I think that uh, I invite you to consider this. <laughs> I invite you to follow up on this line of thinking. Do you need like a okay. like an actual invitation, or is it just a verbal a verbal invitation? No. I look forward to whatever you whatever you find, Eric. Do you believe me? Okay. Yeah, I yeah. Do you need any more? Comments? I hope so. <laughs> you mentioned. You mentioned uh, something that was interesting to me about uh, 
You we mentioned were, something that was interesting to me. Well, I guess Matt Bowman it mentions, uh, almost claims that he underwent like a dissociative fugue in Las <laughs> Vegas like <laughs> because he wasn't pitching well. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that? I well, – uh, it's – as a <laughs> – as a person who is uh, reflective, yeah. it made me incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that there – if you talk to like sports psychologists and stuff, I, there is a driver there to um, encourage athletes to have an external focus. <laughs> like it's sort of been uh, – even – I think there have been studies done on – Free throw shooting in the NBA that shows that free throw shooting late in close games is gets worse for the home team because they're like at home they don't want to miss a free throw late in a close game at home and it's there's you know there's statistical significance that when if that's the scenario that you're more likely to miss a free throw at home but you're the home team late in close games is better at rebounding. Because that's a thing that doesn't oh. like it doesn't require sort of internal thought. There's not a, a a moment of pause there for the per for the athlete to stop and think. You just have to do it. Right. It's a it's uh, right. You're right. It, I mean, it, it's an it's an explosive act where you can essentially where you're if you had any sort of uh, excitement, nervous energy, you could it would actually you know, in dispelling that energy it would it would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I think, and I know just someone who failed at varsity sports in part, I think because not because I'm horrendously unathletic or because I didn't get along with coaches, both of which are arguably true. Mm -hmm. Uh, but like, because when I'd go up for said layup, I'd be like, Oh, I don't want to miss it. I really don't want to miss this layup. And then you know what would happen very often? I would, I'd miss the layup. Yes, I, yes, because you didn't want to be right. It's a, it's the same sort of thing. Which um, uh, I know that before I was married, and when I would have an interaction with uh, being a, a heterosexual man, would have an interaction with a girl. The, the mm. more I was attracted to her, the more difficult it was to have any sort of interaction with her. There was this weird self sabotaging effect, mm-hmm. where it's like my body's like. And my body's like telling me is like, well, you don't really have a chance anyway. So we're gonna, what we're going to do is just going to protect you from the embarrassment that you would undergo if you actually really went after this. Um, yeah, that was a strange thing. I said, dude, are we not? Everything I've been led to believe suggests to me that humans are designed to procreate, uh, or you know, at least a lot of us are. <laughs> keep going, keep the species going, and yet uh, my body does not seem to be inclined to do that at all. Despite despite my real desire in my conscious mind to act in that direction, um, but yeah, as probably uh, being a reflective person, I want to be clear that uh, I do not necessarily think that by by suggesting because I'll, I'll say reflective as a word I'll borrow and apply to my own self. I do I would not like to construe that with intelligent. I do not. I mean, there might be some correlation uh, for some people. I'm not insisting that I'm intelligent by saying I'm reflective. I mostly uh mostly just like to point out the negative aspects of it. I think that that was a 
Have you are you familiar with the book Moneyball? <laughs> uh if you if you remember in that in that book, the comparisons between like Billy Bean and Lenny Dykstra, who is not only arguably unintelligent but also f-ing insane. <laughs> yeah, that's that uh, definitely comes around. Yeah, like I think that the way that's the way I think intelligence. What they mean when they say talk about players being too smart in that book is exactly what you and I are talking right. about. Like I suffer from it too, like just with all the all the time about all everything. Have you ever felt like Have you ever felt like an Elliot Smith song has explained part of your being? <laughs> um, yeah, even against against mm, your better your better wishes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's. <laughs> I will. There are times when like I'll let my beard grow real long, and when I shave it, when I do put needle in the hay on as I'm shaving, <laughs> and it makes it Jillian very uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I've always more identified with like the Smiths. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. A lot uh, of fun. A lot of fun. But. But. Yeah. Can I ask? You, <laughs> uh, you're, we're approaching the hour mark, which means that your uh, your obligation program oh, is oh. coming to an end. Okay. Um, <laughs> You you brought up a point about roving instructors. We were talking about tinkerers, people who might tinker to get ahead, but whereas also making adjustments is good. Probably there is some question as to uh, you know as to the genesis the, the uh, of of those adjustments that um, might matter. Um, but you brought up the possibility that a roving instructor has come through. And um, and maybe uh, suggested a change or demanded a change of a player, be it a pitcher or a hitter. And I guess you know this is actually something which, well, if I'd thought about it for one damn second, I, I assume I could have um, uh, re- regarded it as something of of substance. But I had not until you brought it up. But this idea of the roving instructor and what his responsibilities are and um, the possible negative contributions you can make to an organization. Um, and I was wondering if you might – do you have any sort of uh, concrete examples to which you could point? No, obviously, you wouldn't have to name names, but just – or even just examples of of observing roving instructors at work, what their roles are, if there are any with which you're particularly familiar. Uh, so, yeah, you can sort of – even if you don't know who the roving instructors are – uh, if you're around a team's facility enough, as I have been able to be here in Arizona, or even like, you know, when I was working for the, the Phillies AAA affiliate and you're just there all the time, you see faces come and go, uh, that aren't there every day, and you can kind of identify that, oh, okay, this guy is like the roving instructor, even if you don't know who they are. Uh, but like Mark Pryor. Oh, okay. Mark Pryor. Mark Pryor is the Padres roving instructor. Like, I know who that is when I see him. Um, <laughs> So, but yeah, like this is again, good organizations have ways to make sure that this doesn't happen by putting people like people with com- good communication skills uh, in these positions specifically, uh, where they will have dialogue with the coaches that are, uh, you know, on with that team every day before the roving instructors go and have their way with the prospects. Um, uh, I don't know of any specific examples uh i've just heard stories about uh that sort of thing happening uh and know that it's a concern that some organizations have 
when sending their players to fall league uh, to an affiliate where there's no one in their positional group, as far as coaches are concerned, that that organization is familiar with. What so if you're going to send, go ahead. Well, what are the, what are the qualities that uh, that uh, make a roving instructor? I mean, who 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 are the candidates for that those types of positions? Well, it's a lot of. I mean, like anything else, is there's a good amount of former players. Uh, sometimes you'll see scouts end up doing that sort of thing, but it's it's more of a rarity. Uh, and maybe minor league managers who don't don't have what the organization is looking for from someone that they want to move up the organizational ladder as a manager might be reassigned to a position like that because they like what they've done in developing players at maybe a specific position or defensively among infielders. Like you can get very specific. Uh, so, you know, as long as you have a specific set of skills to apply to player development and have a good communicator can deal with travel and also can pick up where you left off with a kid, even if you haven't seen him in several weeks, like those are all traits that I get, you know, I guess I'd be looking for in a roving instructor and it seems that teams do too. Do you, do you think that uh, like you mentioned Mark Pryor, Mark Pryor is pretty famous. Is, is it something, um, I feel like Mark Pryor is like, uh, he's kind of like, it's like an emeritus position, right? And you sometimes see that with what special, special advisor to the to the general manager or something like that. You see ex players, yeah, special assistant special, positions, right? Where you just sense that this person's employed and is making money, although it's not entirely clear what their duties are. They're essentially being retained by the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, does it? Do, do you, do you Sometimes it's masked that masked as like a promotion when in fact the, the person was removed for, from their original role, right? Which would that, be primarily for that reason. Yeah. So I don't know. Do, I mean, do you find that there, is there like a, an emeritus type of status that goes along with the roving instructor? Uh, not very often. No, okay. Prior's good. Like Prior's really good. <laughs> um, yeah, he's a he's another one of those heady. Uh, guys, and he's you know he's had to reckon with a lot of stuff about his career that was not in his control, and I think that that's probably given him some a learned wisdom that I do not envy, uh, but that is probably effective at, for his job, especially when it comes with dealing with hurt you know minor leaguers. Right. Um, if yeah. if people are put into those positions where you know the on paper that looks like you know a highfalutin job but they're not uh there for any other reason than because they were just sort of put there uh the organizations have a tendency to hide those people they'll give them assignments that aren't necessarily as impactful um the equivalent of like making the the lousy cop (laughs) be the security guard at like the high school girls volleyball game that night like that put him on that detail like that's the sort of thing that will go on if a a person like that finds himself in that position (laughs) sorry (laughs) you're not expressly trying to i mean like look i'm not saying that everyone who's a special assistant to the general manager is in that position in fact it's like probably very very few of them right but like that is in fact the title. If you were, to get, if someone were to offer me that job tomorrow, I'd say yes. That thank you very much. 
that is like the job uh, that people in baseball want. And I think that you've probably heard that come out of other people's mouths. Yeah. I'd like to but, be – would you uh, like to be a special assistant to Fangraphs? Sure, yeah. Actually, I told somebody uh, – do you remember Do you remember when I went – do you remember when I went and saw Julio Tehran? Yes, I do. Remember that? Okay, so like somebody asked me where I was that night and I told them I was seeing Tehran. And they were like, are you special assistant to the <laughs> to the editor in chief now or something or <laughs> yeah so it was very much in that role i know that uh, at one point my my grandfather who's a 90 95 year old man is very concerned with my title at the site okay uh, and i brought i brought those con- i brought his concerns to david appleman directly <laughs> yeah and uh david Appleman was like i don't he's like you can just be whatever you want your title to be just have it be your mm-hmm. title it's not going to affect your job so my grandfather suggested I should be special supervisor. Well, that's what I asked you after the podcast last time we did it, is if I could have my title changed, and you presented me with an emphatic no. You were trying to make a butt reference. <laughs> you wanted to be – I will say it now because I, I, I cut it off from the end of it. You, you said, can you be led, a lead prospect analyst? And the answer is no because <laughs> I do not want to say that over and over. I laughed at that like twice later that day too. <laughs> hey Eric, I'm going to say a couple things to you right now. Okay. I'm going to say one, your obligation is fulfilled. I'm going to say two, I think this is uh the best conversation we've had under the under the uh the banner of Fangraphs Audio. Uh All right. I feel I feel confident um, saying that. That's good. I've I've feel awful about not just having immediate mental recall about Alex Fayeto's repertoire, which I'm sure I've asked people about before and have like probably notes on somewhere. No, what you should do is here's what you should here's how you should respond to that. You should always say you should always I take for granted that you know a bunch. All the right? things. Uh, right. Many of the things. And I also take for granted that that uh part of knowing many of the things is knowing knowing who, knowing who uh, to reach if you need some information. Mm. I had a, a, a what I, I I assumed that he was a brilliant person, a Latin teacher in college, who like we would ask him, "Hey, how do you, how do we find this? Uh, like, or what's the uh, you know? Uh, did I say high school? Did I say college? It doesn't matter. Um, I don't remember. Be like, hey, what's the uh, accusative form of uh, this this fourth declension noun? He'd be like, look it up. <laughs> I, know, I always appreciated that. Um, and, uh, he never, he, you know, he was really, he was really good at what he did. Um, but he, uh, he really had zero, um, compunction about looking things up. You're just like, yeah, I guess we got to look it up. So there you go. No, I wouldn't have much anxiety about it if I were you. I would say the only thing you should worry about is the anxiety about the anxiety, which mm. is what, who said that? Yeah. President Woodrow Wilson, <laughs> who was... Having an affair with Mary Curie. The end. Hey, who Eric, why do you stick around for a moment? But for the purposes of the program, let's end. And here's how we end. I say thank you, Eric Longenhagen. You're welcome, You're welcome Carson, Carson Sestouli. And then I say that has been Fangraph's lead prospect analyst, Eric Longenhagen. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraph's Audio. Mm-hmm.